All right, Michelle, I got my gun in my my microphone, and the gate. <laughs> I got the gate pretended to be locked. You better have it I'm really the, locked. I'm in the Sprinter Van version of West Coast Project, Michelle. That is so cool. And you I know, love you that. You know where I am, right? The e- I think I do. The East version of West Coast Project. I think so. Yeah. I'm in your husband's business lot <laughs> with my <laughs> weapons ready, and that brings us to 501, I guess. The magic magic man. man. Yep. Yep. I just wanted to start off, though, by saying how surprised I am by how much I'd forgotten about season four. When I went back and watched it, I thought I had remembered a lot, but I did not. And the Nacho stuff and how hard that was to watch. They've really made Nacho like this sympathetic character. But, um, you know, he almost died. And then we saw Lalo coming in and starting the torture of him all over again. That's then carried on now. The Werner Ziegler. I, I, I didn't even want to watch that episode again. I really struggled against that. It was terrible, both for him because he didn't take things seriously enough. And, and I made this note before I even started watching episode one of this season. And I put, and for Mike, I put poor Mike. This is going to really bother him. And um, we see that it actually really does. Well, I like La- I like Nacho and Lalo equally, but for um, diametrically opposed reasons. N- Lalo is fascinating. Lalo is an awesome character. Lalo reminds me of what was his name in No Country for Old Men. Anton Chigurh. Yes. Yes. Not exactly, but he just has that way of like, kind of, I don't know, it it feels like several of these characters, the cousins and Lalo and all these people, they just have this bravado in this, but, but it's cold. People who stand there and they're looking at you coldly and then you say something and they're like staring a hole through you and then it's like, okay, show me. He says, show me all the time. There's something really cold about that that's kind of scary yeah, he's and, um, fearless. He's totally like this is just a big joke to him. But it's it, it's a joke to him. The 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 danger is a joke to him. But he takes it very seriously. I think his allegiance is definitely with Hector. Well, yeah, but, no, he's a Salamanca. He is. Hector he, is his uncle. Yeah, yeah, and but he's very loyal to that. I mean, but I guess they all are, huh? Like the cousins and everybody too. Yeah, they're family. They're all so, family. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, you know, we also see the family connection with Nacho and his dad. And, I mean, that's torturous to watch. And, and I don't know, I guess we should say that we're talking about episode one and two. So, if anybody hasn't seen two yet, I mean, I'm sure this will be on the podcast description. But... You know, they are really carrying this threat to his father to a new extreme. They're going to do whatever they can to keep Nacho's feet to the fire. And it's it's a really hard thing to watch. Well, they use the perfect intimidate, intimidation tactic of not only do we hurt your loved one, we make you watch us hurt your loved one. Like they did with Jesse and uh, Andrea. Yes. 
Um, all right, Michelle. So what's going on? We get a long, we get a little bit more gene than we've ever seen before. We do. We get quite a bit of gene and it's all in black and white too. And I didn't even notice that until the second time I watched it. I was so engrossed. It's always um, in black and white. Is it always all of it? Gene is, yeah. Okay. Well, we only get usually 30 seconds a minute or whatever, and we get like, what, six or so minutes of him this time. I love that we're finding out about Gene now. I have like this idea. You know, we we talk about it like we know Saul, and, and, and we know where he ends up, right? But we don't. We're just now finding out how Jimmy became... Uh, Saul, and now we're getting into how Saul, well, we we do know how Saul became Gene, but Gene's story's not over, and I know I tend to forget that as I'm watching this. We still have Gene's story to no, find that's out, the best too. story. That's the most interesting thing to be re- yet to be revealed is Gene's story. And it's heartbreaking. It's literally so Gene, Gene is walking away from the end of last season. He gets out of the cab, and the guy recognizes him. He's a he's in he's in Omaha, but he's got he's got the Albuquerque Isotopes minor league baseball team air freshener. So he's he's an Albuquerque fan, an Albuquerque citizen who's moved to Omaha and become a cab driver, and he recognizes Gene. And then right. Gene gets out. He's like, "Oh, this is good enough," and he just gets out and starts walking through the neighborhood. This is a little confusing to me because it appeared to be like a warm night when that happened. And then Gene is walking in the beginning of this one through the snow and into the parking lot of the mall where his Cinnabon is in the snow. This is the same night, right? So this, it's the continuation of that cab ride. Yeah, absolutely. Because he was scared by the cab driver. Yeah, because I'm, Jeff I'm kept just confused at him in the by mirror. the I'm confused by the sn- lack of snow that I don't remember from last year in the snow in this episode. Well, you have to. I mean, I I didn't notice it was you know warm or anything like what you're saying, but um, but you know you have to assume he was in the ER for how long? You know, maybe six eight hours at least, right? Oh, what's that got to do you, with snow? Well, because it could snow. It could start snowing in the meanwhile if it was just cold when they took him out. No, but he got out of the cab and walked Oh, okay. with no snow and it appeared to be snow. Not oh, a big okay, deal, yeah. but it just seems disparate to me that it was a different climate. Probably wasn't, right. but it just I couldn't connect snow to the other one. Okay. But yeah, he, he had had a rough night because he was very suspicious of the cab driver because the cab driver kept looking at him suspiciously. This was after the lady at the hospital couldn't get his in, input put in right. And he thought he was going to be caught due, due to his social security number. And that was after he fell out at the mall, presumably now due to stress is what I put or I put or even boredom. He, he's such a sad character. But. No, it's definitely stress. He's freaking out. That He's on pins and needles that he's going to get caught at any second. Remember when you didn't want to open the door because it might alert the police that they might come and check out like a burglar alarm? Yeah. And now he's, yeah. you know, now he's got his driver's license doesn't appear to work at the hospital and the suspicious cab driver. But couldn't he work someplace that was less, I don't know, where it was seen less? I guess, or live off his money, but... Yeah, I mean, he's in a mall. 
I mean, people see you in the mall. I would think he would want to, I don't know, do some kind of, I don't know, be in a cubicle somewhere with the same people every day or something, something different than that. So, Michelle, I listened to the um, Breaking Bad or the Better Call Saul Insider podcast. Yeah. And they talk about a couple things that are references to movies that they liked, like the diamonds in the Band-Aid box. Right. As a cash hoard, like that's a cash emergency cash supply is a reference to marathon man did you ever see that movie gosh years ago but yes he kept diamonds from i don't know venezuela or germany wherever he stole the diamonds um anyway that was a reference to that so that's pretty cool and i also looked up how much if those were one carat diamonds they range anywhere in price roughly from 2500 to sixteen thousand dollars piece depending on various things. Well, so so to your point, why not just live off that cash in New Hampshire like Walt with, like, the gates shut and locked and nothing going on versus being in a a mall where several hundred or thousand people can come by each day and buy a Cinnabon? Well, right, several several hundred different people every day. I mean, if you were in an office building or something like that, or even if he wanted to be like a paralegal or something that's in his field or, you know, do something like that, then he would only be around the people that he was around every day. He'd be around the same people versus in the middle of the mall because that was that was really horrifying. I'm sorry, go ahead. What what was the other movie reference? Well, we didn't get to it yet, but so this first okay. this first stage of Jimmy's fear is that the the isotope fan cabbie driver scares him enough that he essentially runs to another state immediately. He like he like gathers his hoard of cash and runs for it based on somebody being. I guess it's on the heels of his driver's license not working at the hospital too, but he's yeah. Sca- but that was fine. I mean, the girl just said she typed in the wrong number. That was fine, but it was enough to make you nervous, enough to make him, you know, creeped out. This is all due to that cab driver and the eerie feeling he got. Yeah, so we got to look at this cab driver a little bit more closely. But for now, he he grabs the diamonds as his cash to to run with and changes plates on his car and drives away. Yeah. So he ends up in another state. Is it Kansas or some other state? Missouri, I think, isn't it? Okay, Missouri. So, and he goes to a diner in Missouri, and this is where the other movie comes in. They say that this is an homage homage to North by Northwest, kind of the aerial shot of the, you see the okay. highway in the diner, and it looks kind right. of like the North by Northwest scene. That's pretty good. Yeah, I can see that. And Michelle, this is where the clock at 1216 was. Right. And we, you found out about that. Yeah, because I read Reddit. <laughs> What's okay. twelve twelve sixteen is the address that Jimmy changed on Chuck from twelve sixty one. He changed it to twelve sixteen, or vice versa. I can't remember which. But Chuck said, "I knew it should have been twelve sixteen because that's one that's one after Magna Carta." So there's a clock in that diner that shows the time at twelve sixteen as kind of a little Easter egg to that hole. Exactly. And I knew they were showing it for some reason, and I couldn't, I couldn't figure out what. Because I mean, they didn't have it at twelve or twelve fifteen. You're right; they had it at twelve sixteen. So that's really cool. I think they filled these episodes with this stuff. It was 
and people people find it. It's crazy. But yeah, he was waiting until noon. I'm assuming because that's when the Cinnabon opened or whatever. And he goes outside and calls uh, Molly, and he asks her in a way to has anybody been looking for him he tells her he's okay it was just dehydration he's made it through and has anybody been around looking for me like you know there's been a pesky insurance guy or whatever has anybody come around but she puts his mind at ease until (laughs) yeah until creepy cabbie comes back man yeah jeff in the mall He's he's opening up. Saul goes in. It's first day back. It looks like, and he's opening up his Cinnabon, and then he's sitting, eating his cheese sandwich or whatever he's having for lunch, and that's when Jeff Jeff the cabbie comes up, and man, I know you. I used to have one of your matchbooks. I lived with my ex back in Albuquerque, and Gene's pretty persistent about. I don't know what you want. But the guy is not he. Okay, what was this guy doing? And what well, was well, that's what getting? I'm going to say. Who is who is this creepy cabbie? He's either a creepy cabbie, or he's some undercover guy, like pretending to be a weird psycho guy that's going to gather more information, uh, or you know, or he's something else. But he is. I think he's more than just a coincidental creepy cabbie. Okay, but how how would that work? Okay, because because I was thinking, okay, when Gene went up to check out at the hospital and they couldn't get his information inputted, I thought maybe she let the cab company know. But that's not it. Because he had, he told her when she called him back that he had already called the cab. So that that wasn't it. And if he were somebody that was sent, why would he have the Albuquerque air freshener in his car? That's a dead giveaway. And why would he be looking at Saul the way he was through the rear view the whole time? I mean, that's a that's a creepy thing. And I was also wondering, okay, he let him off. Saul didn't let him take him all the way back to his car. He let Saul off a couple of blocks back. And... But then he knew where Saul worked. But then I remembered that Saul had his work shirt on. Or he so came from work. The anyway. whole monkey wrench and all this is why does he say you'll do better next time? Why does he want to mess with him again and more and more? Yeah, why would he? Because he's more than just a creepy stalker dude. He's got some other motive. But what what could it possibly be? He's, I don't know. He's a uh, Lalo. I don't know. He could be anything. Maybe Kim sent him. Maybe. I don't see okay. Kim causing. I don't see Kim messing with Jimmy though. I I see her maybe wanting to find him. That's what I'm saying. You know, maybe she just wants to find him, and this guy had to admit it was him. Maybe would Kim hire a down and dirty guy like this though? I don't know. This guy's a I creep. Mean, this guy is a creepy cabbie. He's a creepy cabbie or murderer or something. He's not like some private eye. No, it, no. but you wouldn't want a private eye. You wouldn't send a private eye after somebody, if you loved them, right, who had disappeared like that. Because that would be dangerous for him, maybe. But, I mean, I don't know. Creepy cabbie's probably dangerous for him, too. 
But then Gene walks to the payphone, he pushes the buttons, and then they tell him to deposit 50 more cents. Do you remember when you used to make long-distance phone calls and you had to, like, stand there with change in your hand? I'm really dating myself now. And continue to put change in. That was funny. But the call goes through. He calls for the vacuum part. Yeah, good old Robert Forster. He's back for one little last last homage to himself. I know. Yeah. He died the night that this episode aired, I think. Oh, did he? No, he died the night he died the night um, El Camino aired. Because he died a couple months ago. Yeah. So Jimmy changes his mind to run and goes back to settle things. That's more that's more of a Jimmy McGill or Saul thing than a Gene thing, like to fight back. Because Gene's a meek church mouse. But, but what's he going to do? What, what I don't know. He's tired mean? of running, though. He's tired of being on the run and fearful all the time. But he's got to be on the run, though. I mean, it's not just this guy that's going to be after him. There's a lot more people than that after after Saul. Well, this is not the guy he was running. I'm not from. saying I have the answers. I'm just saying he doesn't. He decides not to run. He goes back to fight. What does that mean? Wonder. I mean, is he just going to fight this guy? Is he going to put an end to this? Who all has this guy told by this point? Is he going to come out of hiding? Is he tired of this? Well, I think what it means is that Jimmy never is completely extinguished into Saul, and Saul is never completely extinguished and it becomes Gene. I think there yeah. are all of the string of all three of that same human run through all of them. And there's some fight left in Gene. I think that's what this means. That he's well, I think, And I think that's good, don't you? Yeah. Because he's a sad sack in this whole thing. I mean, he is really beaten down and that's all we've seen of Gene since we've seen him since this series started. Yeah. Nobody wants to see anyone like Gene, like totally just beaten down by life and everything and everybody. He's afraid of every little thing that comes across his path. And he's lonely. I mean, he would have to be lonely. He has nobody around him. Nobody. They show him, like, sitting in his house. They have him past, uh, you know, eating tea dinners in the dark. And, I mean, he has nothing. It's van life, Michelle. <laughs> okay, so then we go to the intro. The, we're just now at the intro of this. And, again, it's right where we left off with Kim and Jimmy slash Saul just past that law bar meeting thing that Jimmy went through. And Jimmy's telling her he's going to change his name to Saul Goodman because he has all these clients who bought the phone from him, and they're only going to know him by that name. Now, what did you think about all that? Mm, I think the meaning of that is that Kim raggedly, reluctantly agrees to this. Like, she doesn't like it, but she's kind of has to, like, go along with it. I think the point of it is that it's this guy's life. I can't stop it or change it. I still love him, but he's... You know, going to be who he is. Well, yeah, I even made a note. I said anyone with a brain will know that Kimmy doesn't. Kim doesn't like this at all. But, you know, she doesn't stop him from doing it. And he even says, if you tell me to slow my roll, I will. I can come back and whatever. And she's like, no, if you want to do it, do it. But she doesn't like this. But I'm actually asking, what do you think about what he did? 
What do you mean what he did? What he did, what he, how he took that year and he's has a now master, turned it into this. He's a master marketing person. If he wasn't a lawyer, he'd be a master marketing person. He knows how to make people believe in him and he sees the long game. Like he knows the cell phones will produce eventual criminals. He's actually creating crime with the cell phone business. He not only gives criminals a way to facilitate their existing crime, he gives people a way to like engage in new crime with this new tool. He's literally like starting business for criminals with the cell phone business. So he's creating a huge new niche for himself as a criminal attorney. He's creating customers for himself. I don't I don't know if I agree if he's creating customers, but I think he's definitely tapped into that customer base. And I think he found this hidden uh, just plethora of people who need something and he can provide it. He's found those people and he's given them reasons to ways to create more crime, not just to do what they're already doing. Oh, here's a phone. You can. I found people that are already doing something. I'll tap into that. He's given them like these new guys that come along. They they start doing more crime because they have more tools to create more business with crime. Yeah, we'll talk about that when we get to that. I don't know if I agree with that, but but he signs his name as Jimmy Saul Goodman McGill. So that was kind of for everybody who wants to know when Jimmy's going to become Saul. I think we saw it. Then we go to Lalo. He's in the Salamanca diner, and he keeps repeating Ziegler's name. Werner Ziegler, Werner Ziegler, Michael, Michael, Michael. And, uh, Nacho and Crazy Eight are there. And he asks Nacho, he says, do you know how many Werner Ziegler's there are in Germany? And he's like, 27, now 26, according to Werner's widow. Um and then he, like, senses something's going on because Nacho and Crazy Eight are looking at each other. And Nacho tells him that the scales are complaining that this stuff is stepped on. I mean, I'm just having to, like, assume everything. But I even thought, and I even made a note here as I was watching it for the first time, is this a way just for them to divert attention against the Werner Ziegler and the Michael thing? But... I mean, turns out it kind of is, but it's much more in-depth than that. When Gus goes to make a uh, distraction, he does a full measure of distraction. These people don't, don't halfway do a distraction. Who would even think to go to that much trouble to do that? To pull um, Lalo's attention away well michelle you're buying into the mike ehrmantraut full measure versus half measure (laughs) philosophy of crime or philosophy of solving problems half measures don't work well i mean if mike has watched gus long enough and sees the length to which he will go to pull something off i mean it's beyond impressive so then we go to the drug deal, which I have to admit, down the down the drain pipe, that was crazy. That was pretty cool. It's the nitty of the gritty. 
not just Gus's super lab. This is how the down on the streets guys do it. Yeah, it's pretty interesting to see how like one ba little bag gets to one little customer at a time. They show the whole spectrum. Yeah, in a way that like one guy's just taking money. He didn't have anything on him, and then the girl is up in the. I guess she called an apartment, and then they don't ever even see her. Most people don't. It's just like the hand comes out down the drain pipe, and that's it. But then Lalo comes driving up like a mad person and goes beating on the door, and the guy, the the guy who takes the money, is trying to stop him. And Nacho gets him in this heavily guarded place by telling Mouse it's okay. Lalo wants to know where the stuff is. Nacho says it's in the chair. And Lalo goes to look at it. Nacho says no one's stepping on it. He tells him that he's with it all the time, that he takes the packs and he takes six out of the ten that are laid out. And that's how he does it, his choice, and he brings it and they cut it or whatever. So Lalo takes the packs out and he's looking at it, each one he makes two little piles and he says one's good and one's bad so he, he can tell whether it's their stuff or whether it's not just by that so then we go to jimmy and kim and they're at home and she's giving him the presents that she got him she got him that briefcase we saw last time it has the jmm on it and he's like that's okay well I'll just turn it in my motto justice matters most he says that the real trick is to let his clients know that the cell phone guy is now their lawyer. He's got a pallet of cell phones left. His idea is to give them away to promote his visit, his, his business. And then he talks about how he's going to say nonviolent felonies, 50% off. And this is where Kim asks if he's encouraging these people to commit crimes. So Jimmy's dishing up the ice cream and saying they're going to commit the crimes no matter what. And she says, yeah, but how does it look if you're, like, discounting yourself? And he says, no, you're right. Discounts are desperation. And she tells him not to sell himself short. And, you know, Jimmy's like, our relationship works because I go too far and you pull me back. And Kim's unimpressed with that. Yeah, at this so, point. Michelle, why do they stay together? What do they need and get from each other that makes them stay together? Well, I think we're just now seeing the real transition from Jimmy to Saul, and I don't know how long this is going to last, but I also think that Kim, okay, we know Kim has this big heart, right, and she does want to help people, and I think sometimes she's willing to bend the rules, well, I mean, I know she is, to help people in situations, so Jimmy helps her with that, is what I'm seeing so far. And I think she's really having this, she's really fighting internally. With well, she's also willing to bend the rules for her own pleasure. She, like, gets kicks out of it like Jimmy does, like the scamming as the brother and sister that they did to people in those restaurants and stuff. She's a, right. she's a She broke bad a little bit, like Skylar did, like Marie did, like, you know. She's got some fun little criminality in her, too, that she doesn't have a whole lot of. She does not like Jimmy, but she's got a little streak of it. So why do you think they stay together? I don't know. I think they're—I think they have that similar streak, for one thing. But, I, you know, 
I think she's a little bit of a mother to Jimmy in a sort of a sense that she wants to take care of him and protect him from himself. I don't see her doing that a whole lot. I mean, I guess, you know, she she obviously does kind of try to steer him, but I see her walk away a lot. And I'm seeing her, like, distance herself, and then he always is able to win her back. But out of the relationship, it seems like he's the one who's more invested. He's the one who's always saying, do you want to have sushi tonight and watch a movie? I mean, you rarely see her even offer this stuff, except for when his brother died, when uh, Chuck died, and then she did. She was, you know, kind to him and making gestures, but I don't know. It's always been a little mysterious why Kim likes Jimmy so much. I think that's the part of the recipe of this delicious cake. You know, it's like why, what is the appeal between, what is the appeal to Kim of Jimmy? Yeah. I don't know. And I mean, this relationships went back a long time because we saw them. I don't know. I don't I mean they weren't dating back then as far as I know, but back even before they became attorneys. So I don't know. But Jimmy says something kind of profound. He says that he can't be Chuck McGill's little loser brother anymore. And that's why he's become Saul Goodman. Yeah. And to, to Kim's tears. She's like crying a little bit. Well, she says, I just don't see it. And he says, you will. I mean, he has this whole thing envisioned, and he's going to make it happen. Okay, Lalo stresses me out. He goes into Los Pollos Hermanos warehouse to meet with Gus and Don Juan. And he stresses he, you out, Michelle, because he's not wearing socks. Probably. Yeah, maybe so. That's not why he stresses me out. He's so flip, right? He's asking about, oh, so all of these buildings full of chickens? And Don Juan says they have a serious matter to discuss. This is for Gus. Don Juan? Isn't that his name? Yeah, but that's funny to call him just Don Juan Bolsa. (laughs) Don Juan Bolsa. This is where Gus goes into the whole story about Ziegler being a legitimate employee for him who found out about the other side of his business and stole product and then ran and they had to handle it. And Lala wants to know about the construction that Ziegler was overseeing. And Gus is like, it would be easier if I showed you. And then you go in there and there's this whole chicken cooler, chiller, chiller, that they've got set up. And well, there's the whole wordplay of all this, too, because Lalo's thing is, show me. There's right. a major problem. Oh, show me. Like he's all, mm-hmm. like you said, cheerfully, like he, he solves everything with this cheerful, like, okay, I'll dig in to show me. And now Gus doesn't even wait for him to hear, hear him say, show me. He says, it's better if I show you. It, it's like Gus is one move ahead of him on the chessboard. I think this proves Gus is higher up on the, on the, strategy level than Lalo. He's a better chess player. Is he? Because Lalo sees right through him. Yeah, but, you know, how much of Lalo did we see in Breaking Bad and how much of Gus? You know, unless Lalo's been on vacation for eight years and he's coming back at the end of Better Call Saul or whatever, the end of Breaking Bad, which we don't know of, Gus outlasts Lalo. Well, that's true, but... 
I don't know. I think he's pretty perceptive. Although we see Nacho kind of be able to schmooze him a little bit, a little bit later on. But Lalo talks about the south wall. Very nice south wall. It's going to be very nice. And he's just telling us right there that that he doesn't believe what he's saying. Yeah, I'm not saying Gus is a major league player and Lalo's a minor league. I'm saying they're pretty equal, but Gus is higher on the chess game than Lalo. Lalo's pretty clearly competent. He's a very savvy guy. And that south wall line proves it, but Gus is Gus is even better, I think. Well, then we go to commercial. We come back, and outside the chicken plant, Bolsa is talking to Lalo. He's waited for him out there, and he's asking him, you know, why he's there, what he's doing there. So they didn't actually ask to bring him up, right? Because I thought it might be something from, you know, Eladio or somebody, right, that brought uh, Lalo up, but evidently not. He just came up, he says, because he's protecting his family's interest. And then Bolsa scolds him for spying on Gus's men and killing that guy in the travel wire store. He's like, you know, you've made a mess. And yeah, that's a good point. Lalo's way more reckless than Gus. Gus was reckless in, like, getting his revenge on Hector, which would have, that was his undermining. But Lalo is really reckless. He pushes that guy's car out into the street. He's, like, kills the Western Union kid on camera. I mean, he's really reckless. Yeah, he reminds me, like I was saying, more of like the cousins. It's that Salamanca way, I guess. But he says that he's just like Hector. He's unreasonable. And Hector thinks that Gus might be holding a grudge because he killed his lover right in front of him. And he kind of scoffs at it. And Don Bolsa says it's all business with Gus. And that he needs to know that he's done because Eladio is happy with Gus earning, essentially. Lalo also comments on Gus's Chilean life, which is very fascinating to me. Like, I always wondered what happened in Chile in Gus's past history. And I bet we're going to get that fleshed out in this, if not this season, next season, which is really kind of cool to me. I want to know what Gus did to the Chilean military or government or somebody important back in Chile that got him either super advanced as a criminal or, I don't know, exiled from Chile or whatever. I want to know Gus's backstory. It's just so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That would be interesting to know. Well, Lalo does his little pause thing and then he breaks into a smile and says, well, nothing more to talk about. And he just walks away. It's also bad business, Michelle. Like they, like you said, that as long as a lot, Don Eladio's happy, everything's good, all is well. But that's to the detriment of like common sense. Like you can make your boss happy, but if you're not giving him smart intel and he's not acting on that intel precisely to make his business better, it's not good. It's not good to just keep somebody happy. It's good to use intelligence wisely, not just to. Like, I'll keep bad news from them to keep them happy. No, I don't think that's necessarily what they were talking about there, though. Do you? It's exactly what they're talking about. As long as Eladio is happy, all is well. No, he just didn't want... Lalo was essentially... He's threatening to Gus 
he wants Gus out of there. He doesn't trust him. And much like Hector didn't. And Bolsa just didn't want Lalo getting rid of Gus because Gus brings in the money. I think it just boils down to the money. Yeah, so why doesn't Balsa go to Eladio and say, hey, Gus is a problem. He's bringing in the money, but he's got ambitions to take over our channels and he's going to eventually try to take over our business. No, Eladio is just happy because he's bringing in the money. That's that's bad. That's a bad channel for Eladio to only have Balsa reporting the things that keep him happy. Oh, don't no worry. Don't worry, Eladio. Gus is doing well. He's bringing in the money. But do you think Balsa thinks that Gus wants to take over? I think Balsa protects. I think Balsa also benefits from bringing Eladio only good news. Like any people do with a boss or a king or somebody above them. If you always bring them good news, you look like, oh, the good messenger. I'm always happy to see this person. Whereas the person who delivers the bad news that's valuable sometimes... They get punished for bringing the bad news, but that bad news is very valuable to that higher-up leader. Okay. I just always felt like Balsa was more easily fooled by Gus. Because Gus, I think Gus's answer satisfied Balsa. Yeah, but Balsa doesn't say to Eladio, or Balsa doesn't say to Lalo... Why do you think this? Tell me the reasons behind your concerns. He says, oh, no, just don't. Everything's good. We want to keep Eladio happy, and Gus is bringing in the money, so let's let that be the story. Well, he- true, but Lalo had kind of jokingly and scoffed at the fact that the contention is because Hector had killed his lover, Gus's lover. And he's like, so there's contention. He didn't say anything else. He didn't come up with anything else. And he's not even telling Bolsa. Lalo is more suspicious of Gus than just killing his lover, though. Oh, yeah. So yeah. If, he sh- if he's if he got that intel and Bolsa's smart, he would want to know more about that intel to relay back to Eladio. If, if he was a good lieutenant of Eladio, Bolsa would have dug for the more information, I think. I'd rather okay. have a... I'd rather have a Lieutenant to me bringing me bad news than somebody just glad handing me all the time and giving me, you know, oh, everything's great, boss. Oh, money's coming in. Everything's good, boss. Everything's great. Yeah, but I don't think Bolsa is like covering up anything. And I don't think he's necessarily looking the other way. I think Gus is a master manipulator and he really does cover up the stuff that he's doing underhandedly. Yeah, but Lalo in- knows better. Lalo knows hints of Gus's miss. Lalo knows. So Balsa should listen to Lalo. We've gone around this lap three times, so I know. I'll give up. Well, then we go to the freak show. Step right up, folks. We have a carnival carnival tent and everything. Saul's giving away phones and churros and sells himself individually to each person based on their stereotype. And it's actually a brilliant scene. But Saul's hair freaked me out just a little bit in this. It was very American horror-ish. Um, yeah, Michelle, are these transvestites or hot women? I'm uncomfortably conflicted by not knowing this. I don't have any idea. They looked like men, almost, or very masculine women. Just I'm pretty sure women. those were men. All right. Pretty sure. Damn. He's telling the potential clientele that he's called Magic Man 
uh, which is the name of the episodes where he got the episode. And he got it from Huel, who's the guard outside, because he was coming up on doing 25 years and he didn't do a day. So what did you think about this whole scene? It's brilliant. It's so, it so planting the seeds of, here, little criminal, you be a little misdemeanor criminal now, but you can be a big felony criminal in this near future and I'll take your money to represent you. Well, after he ran out of phones, the crowd starts to disappear, and he can't keep their attention, so he offers them the 50% off anyway. He does it. And (laughs) Huel says, well done, magic man. And um, Saul says, we're just getting started, which was pretty cool. Yeah, Jimmy's bell, I keep calling him Jimmy Saul, I guess, interchangeably. Mm -hmm. His bell resembles Hector's bell. Oh, yeah, it is, isn't it? Okay, that's pretty good. I didn't get that either. I should have definitely caught that. And then we go to commercials. And it was like, the first night I watched it was over four minutes of commercials. And for some reason, it was toward the end of the episode, and I thought it was off. So I, like, get up and start doing stuff and getting ready for And then I look at the TV and realize there's, like, a few minutes left, and I turn it back on, and it wasn't. But Because there was even upcomings in those commercials. So, um but this is where we go to the scene where Ziegler's guys are being transported in a in that laundry truck. And they evidently think it's to their demise. But they're let out, and they're in the middle of this desert. And there's different cars with instructions for each of them to go in different directions to get back to Germany. And they're scared, but when the back opens, Mike says, if you're going to die, you'd already be dead. And he says, you know, get out. we got things to do. He said, the job's not done, but you're going to get paid in full. And then he goes into how you can never, ever, never, ever say a word without consequences befalling you. And so Kai comes up and makes a derogatory comment about Ziegler. He calls him soft, and Mike punches him straight in the mouth. And then Casper comes up, and he says that Ziegler is worth 50 of Mike. And stands there, I guess, waiting on his punch. And Mike... You could tell that, like, was a gut punch to Mike, which I thought was a great interaction. Yeah, it's true, too. Werner was a doofus, but he was an innocent, kind doofus. And Mike is a, you know, he's a killer. Mike is a pretty straight guy, as criminals go, but Werner is not a criminal, and he's a sweet guy that, like, made some bad decisions. And I would agree with Casper. 50, 50 people in the society that we live in would be... I'd rather have 50 Verners than Mikes, than one Mike. Well, back at the chicken plant with Gus. Wait a minute, Michelle. Okay, I'm sorry. Siri and, and I did some research. Okay. You, you know I like math, so I couldn't resist. So Mike sends okay. all these guys back to Germany on different routes to cover their tracks. And... So they get tickets and they're going from different airports. So I did the the distance, Michelle. So from he they essentially go to four different airports. Denver is four hundred and forty eight miles from Albuquerque by car miles and three hundred and thirty four by crow flying by the crow flies. So Denver. Dallas, six hundred and fifty one car miles and five hundred and eighty eight crow miles. Phoenix I think, and he tells Kai, you're going to D- Dallas. You got a long drive, you jackass. He sends him to the farthest airport <laughs> <laughs> by himself, by the way. Um, Phoenix, 419 car miles, thir- 330 crow miles. And El Paso, 
the kindest, shortest airport, 266 miles by car and 229 by beeline by crow. And they were all even ending up in different places. They weren't even all flying back into you know same place. Even it was, it was well thought out. Anyway, like everything else that was did. interesting to me. I don't. It doesn't add anything to the story, but I like the. I like looking at like okay, why, why do I have to go all the way to freaking Dallas when El Paso is like a third of the way? That is interesting. I'll just I wonder why with, they did that. I'll just ride with uh, Hans and not go to Dallas. Yeah. Anyway, they were probably they been happy to, to drive twelve hundred miles just to get out of that mess. Well, true, yeah, or yeah, taking a paddle boat across the sea. Okay, back at the chicken plant. This is where Gus and Mike are talking about what happened with the guys. And Mike says the guys know the consequences, and he thinks they'll be quiet because Gus says, do you think, you know, this is going to be okay? And then Gus says that as long as Lalo is here, they can't continue with what they're doing. And when he's um, dealt with, then construction is going to resume. And until then, Mike's going to remain on the payroll. And Mike's like, you're going to pay me for nothing after Ziegler. So Mike feels bad about the whole thing, right? He feels like he, I think here he feels like he, well, is completely responsible for Ziegler in that he didn't keep a close enough eye on him. His guardianship over him wasn't strong enough. And because of that, he ended up having to kill him. I think Mike is rejecting compensation for a human life. Like there's no number, there's no compensation of dollar number that you can exchange for a human life. That's right. what he's rejecting from Gus. Okay. There were well, also, that makes more sense. There were some interesting parallels here too, Michelle, like Werner's wife not ever knowing the truth. Like the like the lady Anita not ever knowing the truth about her husband, we talked about that. And then right. Lydia, remember when Lydia, when Mike was about to kill Lydia, and she said, "Don't take my body away, leave my body here after you kill me, so my daughter can see me. I don't want her to think I disappeared and not know the truth." I do remember that. Yeah. So there's something there about like not knowing the truth is such a horrifying thing. That that lady, Anita, was in therapy for it. And Warner's wife will never know the truth. They think he just died in an accident. I guess got his body sent back in a cremated vase or something for burial. <laughs> I don't know how they disposed or explained away the body. Right. But maybe. I mean, maybe they sent a body that looked like an accident. But the whole thing of not knowing the truth was interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so that was, I mean, I guess like a kindness to her. She'll never know the difference, maybe. But Gus tells him that, you know, she accepted the facts and she was compensated. And the word compensated really sets Mike off. And Gus tells him to choose his next words carefully. And Mike just tells him to keep his retainer and walks off. And then we go to the loser DA, Oakley, 
he's trying to get his chips out and he uses that maneuver that I think Jimmy taught him a long time ago and he hits the side of the machine and then he's looking around to make sure no one, you know, saw him do it or whatever, this tough guy. And then he's walking, eating those chips and the film students come up and they assault him with questions, posing his news media and he has no idea what they're even talking about and it draws a crowd and then Saul comes up and makes his speech and starts passing out business cards to all the crowd standing around. It's, I mean, inter- it's, so it's interesting how ridiculous. everybody breaks bad, even a fraction, a tiny little crack of a fraction. Like that lawyer, not supposed to jiggle a vending machine. That's like illegal. <laughs> but he looks around to make sure he won't get caught and he breaks a little bit of the law by jiggling the machine. He knows it's wrong, but he does it because he won't get caught. Yeah, it's also wrong for that machine not to give you that money you put, you know, your, your, what you paid for, but. Yeah, so you call the number. You, I mean, if he was a dyed in the wool <laughs> lawyer, you call the number, you get a refund of your eight, 85 cents or whatever. You don't short circuit <laughs> that. They're, right. They do that for a reason. You know, they make him look like, oh, I hope I don't get caught doing this, even though it's like, who cares? It's a, it's well, in there. that, and I think Jimmy showed him that. If, if I remember right, I seem to remember that he was trying to get something out, and Jimmy came up and like did this little hit maneuver and got it out for him. And so I, I kind of looked at it as like Jimmy's bad influence, right, is rubbing off, even on these straight, completely straight-laced people. Yeah, but I think you have to have it in. I, that is true, but I think you have to have it in you, too, or you don't do it. I would never do that, you know. I would never murder somebody. I would never jiggle a vending machine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I am glad to know that, particularly the first one you said. But okay, so then Kim is talking to Bobby and Lois about taking that plea deal. She's gotten in five months. What's this guy who has like stolen a, an 18-wheeler full of mini fridges and tried to sell it to an undercover cop. And she has gotten him down to five months in prison. She has talked the, with the DA and gotten that deal. And Bobby wants to go to trial. And Kim knows that this is a huge mistake and that he's just being really stupid. Well, Jimmy comes up and she walks away to talk to him. And he wants to pull a scam on him saying he's from the DA's office, make a scene, they're pulling his deal, yada, yada. Well, Kim's uncomfortable because he's the client and this is his decision. And Jimmy goes on and on. And finally, Kim gets furious and tells him to back off, which he does. But he's definitely a little put off by it. Yeah, I think this little scene is a great is more evidence of how great this writing is in this show. Because this little guy who steals these refrigerators, <laughs> who freaking cares, right? And he's going to go to jail for six years or something. He's arguing with Kim about, oh, let's let's roll the dice, let's go. You know, I'll, I'm willing to take that chance. And his wife is next to him. She's this milk toast, little innocent, fragile bird. She's pregnant. You know, in this whole courtroom meat eater jungle of predators, like she doesn't know what she's involved in. But she totally. Defer- and she's got a baby too. Yeah. She's totally deferring to her husband, but he is slightly more than a little bird himself. He's also a fragile little innocent you know, mammal in this meat-eater jungle. He's ready to be devoured by the system. I don't know. It's just it's it's a great piece of writing to show that he's not much different than the wife. 
although he's trying to appear tough and I'm, you know, I'll roll the dice. I'm not afraid of going to jail, whatever. And and the wife looks so innocent, but he's just as innocent as that wife. He's not innocent, though. He's not innocent. He's got priors they're talking about. That's why it's a big deal to get this five months for him. He's just an idiot. He's just an idiot. He doesn't care who he takes down with him. You know, he's got his pregnant wife beside him. He's got his one-year-old in the stroller or less than. And, you know, to say he he thinks, he even makes the words, you know, I'll just open my eyes real big and they'll look at, uh, you know, my, my wife over here. She's pregnant and they'll believe me. And his wife's going, I believe you. You know, I mean, just completely stupid. So why is he why is he 30 seconds later ready to buy into the deal that he totally rejected as soon as he sees Jimmy play acting with Kim? He's afraid. He's a little fragile bird just like her. Okay. He's a criminal. I, I he's a petty criminal though. He's not like this badass that he pre- pretends to be in front of his wife. He's he's a he's a little pussy. He's afraid of the thing that he was bold up to a minute ago. Do you think he's doing that to be some way in front of his wife? Yes. He's See, like, I'll roll the dice. So at I, I'll all. Roll the- I don't think so at all. I don't think he gives two cares about that person sitting beside him. I think it's just this, he just screams narcissism. He doesn't care about anything except him and him maybe well, not, not having to go That's through. not mutually exclusive from my point that he's a, that he's a, flower in this jungle no i mean and i actually agree with you on on that he's he's definitely in over his head he has no idea what he's saying but kim makes a comment about are you worried about not being out when your wife delivers and he kind of looks around and goes huh what oh uh well uh you know and just doesn't even he just doesn't care about anything. Yeah, but you can be stupid and be an animal. You can be stupid and be Mike Tyson. And you can be stupid and be, you know, just a, a fragile little being. And he's just like her. He's a criminal. He stole a truck of refrigerators. I get it. But he's not very... He's not very... He's, he's not, not sophisticated. He's not a predator sure, at right. all. Well, Kim goes back and she does Jimmy's deal anyway. She says he was with the DA, blah, 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 and she has the guy begging her for the deal that he was just refusing. And she's saying that it looks like they want to make an example out of him, and they could try to get the five months. She don't know. She'll see. And she walks away and stands in a stairwell, very upset. And that's how episode one ends. She's uh, good at taking refuge in stairwells. Yeah. (laughs) That's her peaceful zone, her happy zone. So, Michelle, we talked a little bit about how Jimmy is Saul now and the line between Jimmy becoming Saul was murky and they did it in grades, you know, gradual degrees. You know what? It doesn't matter to me when Jimmy became Saul. It's not everybody thinks that's important to me. It was never that important. Yeah. He literally signed his name as Saul. Like, okay, that's it. That's the point. That's the, you know, ground zero of Jimmy becoming Saul. It's like, to me, that's so what? It's not that big of a deal in this story other things are more important no i don't disagree with you i mean much more important it's like you said at the beginning jimmy saul gene is all part of saul so i agree 
But we had people that dropped out of this series, like in what, season two? Because they weren't seeing any of Saul. And they're like, where's Saul? We want to see Saul. So, yeah, and people who are like, oh, I don't want to see Jimmy. I don't want to see Jimmy turn into Saul. Jimmy's such a sweet guy. But, I mean, it's the story. And the whole story is important, not the point at which Jimmy becomes Saul. Right. And Saul becomes Gene. <laughs> um, it's all... I don't know. I like to wrap my arms around the whole thing and not just pinpoint the part where the transition takes place. Well, now I want to see when Gene becomes whoever he becomes. Well, we'll find out about that in the next episode, Michelle. <laughs> Will we? But that's, well, I mean more of it. Yeah. Some episodes coming up. But that's 501 Magic Man. Uh, we'll see you next time on 502 next week, which is tomorrow. Okay. All right, Michelle. Talk to okay. you then. We'll talk to you then.